0: Joshua 19 here we've got this apparently boring account of all these different uh, boundaries of the, the, the tribes that they were to inherit but there's a lot of lessons here if, we, if you look for them um, starting off in the first, uh, first verse talking about the territory of Simeon their inheritance was in the midst of the inheritance of the children of Judah and that was because uh, Judah had uh, too much it, it says for them. And what that really means, verse 9, out of the part of the children of Judah was the inheritance of the children of Simeon, for the portion of the children of Judah was too much for them. What that really means is that Judah were lazy or not strong enough to take the the land that God intended them to have, and so Simeon was given land amongst them. And of course what happened by that happening was that the old prophecy that had been made by by Jacob that Simeon and Levi were to be divided in, uh, in Israel they were to be scattered that's in Genesis 49 verse 7 uh, that came true and you see there what I would call the divine economy this sort of a kind of divine uh, ecology of how everything works together Judah's weakness, Simeon's weakness it didn't defeat God's overall purpose the progress of his project, as it were, to fulfill his word, still came true. Now, God is sensitive to human weakness. He gave them not the whole land from Euphrates to the Mediterranean or the Nile to inherit, but he gave them what he knew they could handle. But they couldn't even handle that. And even when they couldn't handle that, he still makes concessions. You could say that he so wants to give them a place in his kingdom. And when we, we wonder whether our weakness and dysfunction shall deprive us of eternal inheritance in God's kingdom, not so. God really does want us to be there. And the way he keeps on making these concessions to, to the tribes about their territory is amazing. There's an oblique reference, I think, to it in Micah 2, verse 4, where we read that God changed the portion of my people. And I think that's what he's doing here, but he does it in grace. And the whole record here that we're reading is very graceful. It doesn't actually say that Judah didn't drive out the tribes as they should have done. It just says their land was uh, too much for them. And at the same really in verse 47, where we read about Dan Going up and fighting against Lishem and taking it, well, that actually wasn't part of their possession. It says, verse 47, the border of the children of Dan went out beyond them. I take that to mean that God gave Dan a certain area to inherit, but they actually went and took something else that wasn't theirs at uh, Leshem. And 48 says, this is the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Dan. So God allowed them, to some extent, to define their own borders. Now, when you get a Judges 1, verse 34, you see that Dan was not strong enough, not faithful enough, to live in the valley areas. And actually, the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains. And yet God graciously, in this record here, doesn't quite comment on that. It's almost like, oh, well done, they went and took uh, some extra land that wasn't theirs. Well, yes and no. <clears throat> they should have taken what God intended for them. We read repeatedly that this was their inheritance, like in verse 1, according to their families. Now, although what we have recorded here is the outline border of the inheritance and the list of of towns, it seems to me that God actually intended each family to have a specific piece of land. and That's why you read, say in verse 16, for example, (coughs) according to their families, these cities with their villages... Well, cities, I mean, these are really small little towns, what we would call villages. And so when we read about cities with their villages, the villages are really little hamlets, uh, just a couple of houses. That's all that uh, was really in view here. And so God thought up for each family, almost for each individual, a tiny little portion of land for them to inherit. And yet they didn't, most of them they went and lived somewhere else, they didn't take all that God had uh, given them, or like the Simeonites, well, they had to go and live in, in Judah. And there's a lot of this uh, mixing around of the of the inheritance. And I think you, you see a, a sort of example of that in verse 34, which says that uh, the border, this is of Naphtali, <coughs> Uh, reached to Zebulun on the south, and reached to Asher on the west, and to Judah at the Jordan. Now, it's certain that the tribe of Naphtali did not border on the east with Judah. There were several tribes between them. These miserable Bible critics like to pick on that and say, there you are, it's a mistake. If you look on your map, no, the tribal inheritances don't meet there between Naphtali and Judah. But I think that was because, it's written like it is, because there were people from Judah living in areas not intended for them. And God's uh, geography, as it were, accepted that. Now, we each have been given an inheritance in God's kingdom that is prepared for us from the beginning of the world. Come, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So just as God prepared a land inheritance for each family, almost down to each little hamlet, each little... Uh, little group of houses. So God has prepared a future for us. Now, why is it then that it's split up by lots? Well, as we know from Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, you may, uh, in this kind of context, do lots, but ultimately the disposing of them is from the Lord. I think this process was used to emphasize to these people that this is really what God has given you. Well, they weren't happy with that. They wanted to live somewhere else. They didn't like where they were, etc. Like uh, Judah, some of them going to live somewhere else, and the (coughs) the Simeonites given land amongst Judah, etc. They didn't like what we would call the ties that bind. And this trying to shrug off the ties that bind in life is the source of an awful lot of spiritual failure. Take an extreme case, somebody may be married with kids and they fall in love with some other woman, they commit adultery, trash that first marriage, divorce, remarry, mess up their kids' lives, mess up their first uh, wife's life, etc. Now, I'm not saying that's okay, that's not okay. But it doesn't mean that God stops working with that person. They have redefined their inheritance, as it were their portion. And God, it seems to me, accepts that. Now by saying that, I'm not saying it's okay to have an affair and re- divorce, remarry, uh, just because you, you you get bored. Uh, not at all. You see it also, let's say, with adult children. Fed up, we're looking after mum who's deaf and blind and a bit awkward. Now, I'm not saying that we should uh, stay in abusive relationships but the phrase abusive relationship seems to me to be used rather glibly well yes mum's old and blind and, uh, uh, and deaf and a bit awkward sometimes that, that's not an abusive relationship that's a test to your Christianity and so it, it goes on with uh, children not wanting to be with parents parents not wanting to be with difficult kids fed up with the ecclesia the denomination with the, the set of people that God's put into your life well, the whole set of people that we have in our lives and the whole setup up of our lives, the point in history in which we were born, the geographical place that we were born, this was all thought out by God, by a God who wishes to do us only good at our latter end. And when we try to shrug off those ties that bind, when we search for radical freedom, and I use the word radical in a kind of, a, kind of chemical sense, from a discipline of chemistry, that um, totally um, uncombined with anything else, just a free radical free to do what you want. That's when things go wrong. And of course, Paul talks about this in Romans 6, where he draws the great paradox that if you just do what you want, you are in fact a servant of sin. And the only way to truly radical freedom is by being a slave, a servant with all the ties that bind of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, it's not that God will cast you off if you redefine those boundaries. As I say, Dan didn't take what they were given, in in Judges 1 it says that, um, and they went and attacked Lishem, and it wasn't in their inheritance, but, 48, this is the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Dan. Okay, that's what you want. God gave it to them. And so, as I say, whilst not saying that we should remain in abusive environments, relationships, God has, to some degree, set our path for us and set our location for us. And it's because he knows that that's best for us. And he wishes to do us good only in our latter end. Now, looking closer at some of these towns, for example, in verse 2, Beersheba, verse 3, Ziklag. um, I mean, Ziklag, it passed to the Philistines. Neither Judah nor Simeon took it. And then it uh, ended up with them. with Judah and Beersheba again it's emphasized a couple of times later on in the Bible that Beersheba belonged to Judah and I think that's emphasized in order to show us that Simeon didn't grab what they could have had, neither did Judah initially, so it passed to other people and then all the same it ended up with uh, with Judah um, <clears throat> same with the uh, same as so the the point is that you can twist and turn to try to get a new environment etc if only I was not living in this country if only I was not in this ecclesia if only I was not in this dumb denomination if only I was free of my in-laws of my partner sometimes of my kids sometimes these are the ties that bind and as I say I'm not saying stay in an abusive relationship but I am saying that those ties that bind are from God, and yes, you can chuck them off a bit and try and redefine your, your, your position before God, but that only makes it difficult, harder, actually. And the situation that we're in is intended by God. That's all I can say. And really, all this detail, I mean, obvious question, that's sort of a childish sort of question, why all these boarding names? I mean, it's a pretty good question. Why does God bother recording all this stuff? Uh, Verse 11, the border reached to the brook that is before Jocneum. I mean, what on earth do we need to know that for? These guys didn't inherit according to what God planned, so why does he bother recording all this and preserving it? Because the whole uh, formation of the canon of Scripture, the whole preservation of God's written word, the Bible, has been pretty amazing. Why why not just sum it all up in a couple of uh, sentences? And this is a wider question, because actually quite a lot of the Bible is like this. It's a record of potentials that God made possible that were not realized. The same with Ezekiel 40 to 48. As I see it, that's a prophecy or a prediction, not a prediction, but um, yeah, a, a, a potential prophecy, let's put it like that, of what could have been possible at the Restoration. But it didn't happen. So why on earth do we have chapter after chapter of tiny detail? I think the point is this is the potential that could have been. So why is it all recorded? Why has it been preserved? Why do we have to read it? Well, I think to one, for one thing, it shows us that God remembers wasted potentials, and that's why it must be pretty tragic being God. And in fact, it's also to show us, as we read through the Old Testament, particularly, there's also there in the New Testament if you look for it, that so much of God's dealing with human beings and particularly with his people has all been about this offering of potentials, setting up of potentials and people failing them that takes up such a big part of the Bible that I think that it's there to continually remind us of our own position that we also have got huge potentials that we can waste so easily now I'd like to um, just mention in passing that uh, sometimes the number of cities that are mentioned, like in verse 30, 22 cities with their villages, uh, critics like to say, yeah, well, there's about 30 cities listed above that. Why 22? Just in passing, I think that may be because some of those cities that are mentioned were in fact border towns, didn't actually belong to the tribe. And there may be a confusion a bit between the uh, the, the cities uh, and the and the villages. That's just uh, in in passing. So then, <clears throat> I'd focus on 49. The children of Israel gave an inheritance to Joshua the son of Nun in their midst. So many times when you read about the inheritance in the Old Testament, and these particularly in Joshua, actually, you read about how they were to inherit among their brethren it was an inheritance among their brethren that phrase occurs about uh, about 20 times and you have it here in its essence that Joshua inherited in their midst amongst them amongst the children of Israel now that's picked up also in the New Testament when Paul talks about commending us to the word of God's grace that's able to build us up and to give us an inheritance among them that are sanctified, those who are in the body of Christ. So then, it's not that God is sort of offering us on an individual level, eternity, and that's it. Obey me, I'll give you eternity when Jesus comes back. Disobey me, no deal. It's not like that. Salvation is in Christ, because he was, and is, our representative. His death and his resurrection become ours. This is the point of Romans 6 again, that by baptism we identify with his resurrection and his, uh, his death. And so therefore, the one person who has been resurrected to eternal life becomes a pattern for all of us who are in him. So then our access to salvation is in Christ. And going a bit further, it is by being in the body of Christ. It is therefore an inheritance, in these Old Testament terms, an inheritance amongst your brethren. Like Joshua got his inheritance amongst, or in the midst of, the children of Israel. And as I say a couple of times in Acts, we we have that phrase used, an inheritance amongst God's people. So then, this is why, in this life, we must show identity with the body of Christ. It is not enough to just push off on our own and consider that I'm fine, I'm, I read my Bible, I pray to God, I sit behind my computer and uh, read a few Christian things, I'm good. No, there must be an active participation in some form, an active identification with the body of Christ in practice. Now, how that is articulated in each human life and situation and circumstance is uh, is different, but I would say that we should be looking at uh, involvement in an ecclesia a church a group of believers now they gave to joshua the inheritance which he asked the city which he asked and i said that the city really means town or even what we'd call a village even timnath in the hill country of ephraim now you try and check out timnath seara it's a pretty awful place up in the in the hill country barren not a good place but he said give me that he didn't say, yeah, well, I let as well. you give me a place in uh, somewhere cool like Jerusalem or, or wherever uh, that the, that the cool place to live was. Give me a penthouse apartment. Uh, he took this really quite uh, remote location because of the meaning of proper, property, as you know, is location, location, location. And uh, he takes a pretty dumb place and he wanted that. And so they gave it to him. And uh, you could say that's another example of grace. That's as if the children of Israel kindly gave Joshua what he asked. Well, yeah, he he asked for something that nobody wanted. And I think that is an essay, really, in his humility. I know I sort of feel sorry for Joshua because coming after Moses, that was a pretty hard act to follow. And he doesn't quite get there. He wasn't quite of the statute of Moses, I don't think, but... Um, he had a, a a faith and a humility about him that that I, I find very uh, very attractive so then the point is God has prepared for each of us a unique place in his kingdom and we are starting to inherit that now because we are in a limited sense the kingdom of of the Lord Jesus and of God in this life because a king reigns over a dominion. King Dom is therefore the dominion, the sphere over which he reigns. And that is you and me. And so I think that all the all the way through this, we see God saying, this is what I planned for you, but you didn't want it. You squiggled and and, and, and squeaked to try to weasel your way into a better position as you see it. It didn't really quite work out. You should have taken what I prepared for you, because it was not really a splitting up of the land from the Euphrates to the the Nile or or to the Mediterranean. I gave you what you could cope with, but you didn't even want to cope with that. Um, I'd also like to point out, just in passing, that I find this um, really quite uh, an encouraging set of, uh, not coincidence, but a, a, a sign of the divine hand you look at the order in which these tribes are mentioned here, they starting off with Simeon, and then Zebulun, Issachar, Asher, and after Dan. This is uh, the same order, pretty well, or a very similar order to that which, with, in which you know, Jacob blessed the tribes, his sons, uh, in, in Genesis 49. And yet it says here, this was by Lot. Well, quite clearly, it was the same divine hand working here as was working upon Jacob. Now, that means then that when Jacob gave those prophecies, the hand of God was upon him as well. And yet, sadly, a lot of those intended blessings that he dished out to the tribes, to his sons, also never came true. Um, And that's because, it seems to me, again they did not live up to that which was potentially possible. So then, in terms of self-examination, we need to look at our lives and perceive and ask God to help us to perceive what he has made potentially possible and to go for it and not weasel our way out all the time, try to make our own kingdom on our own terms, but in the final end to trust him that he wishes to do us good in our latter end and to believe that and work with that rather than against it.